my wonderful friends. Welcome to Faith FM Drive Time. Welcome to Big Questions for God. This is the show where we respond to difficult questions concerning God, faith, contemporary religion and the Bible. This is the show where we look at world religious trends in the light of Bible prophecy. I'm Pastor Gary, minister to the Brighton Seventh-day Adventist Church in the beautiful city of Adelaide. If you have questions, you can text them to our desk at 0438-066-635. This week we're starting an, a brand new question. This week we ask, how relevant is the Bible to the early third millennium? Today we start by asking, can I trust a book that is so old? Our specialist in the hot seat today is Pastor Mark Wilson. Mark is pastor of the Prospect Seventh-day Adventist Church in South Australia. He's an international traveller, a renowned presenter on both biblical history and archaeology. Welcome to you, Mark. (laughs) Hello, Gary, and hello to our listeners. Uh, It is fantastic to have you in the studio today. Well, I'm just so overjoyed to be with you too, Gary. Mark is one of our regular presenters every Monday. Mark uh, comes in to uh, to share with. So I really appreciate what uh, what Mark does does share. Uh, Mark, tell us now. You're going to be sharing just a little bit today on with your experience on uh, Bible history and archaeology. Uh, tell us what led you. What was it that led you into presenting in? Onto Bible archaeology and history. Well, look, when I first um, got interested in in the Bible, um, I was well aware that there was a lot of um, varying different voices in the world. Uh, I, mean, I, I thought all Bible believers were hypocrites, and you know, look. So I wanted something. If I was going to get into this confusing world of Christianity and the Bible, I needed something solid. Mm. Uh, upon which to build my faith. I wanted evidence. Mm-hmm. I wanted a reason to believe. I was mm-hmm. trained as a computer programmer. Mm-hmm. I was trained to think logically, and so I want some. I wanted some logical, you know, uh, hard evidence, something that I could build a credible, intelligent faith upon. And uh, I tell you what, uh, it didn't take long, and I found a. Uh, too many answers, truckloads of answers. Mm. And, um, the evidence That's powerful, actually, because so many people believe faith is just, you know, uh, some one of those uh, airy fairy type of things out there that has n- very little substance to it. Yeah, not not at all. Uh, look, faith, if it's going to be faith at all, it has to be built on evidence. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there's an abundant look. Not every answer, question is answered. Mm. We accept that, but but. Uh, but there are a lot more answers out there than what a lot of people actually recognise. Oh, an abundant amount, if people would just look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that, that, that's powerful. Tell me, Mark, where have you presented in the past? Well, uh, around Australia, um, maybe not every state, but uh, West Australia, Queensland, a number of the states of Australia. I've gone over to America, to a couple of states over there, and I've been over to the Solomon Islands and to Poland. And Yeah, I heard that you were in Poland last year presenting. Uh, two years ago, I was in Poland, yes. Oh, that was two years ago? Yeah. Okay. Time flies. You speak Polish? Uh, Jean Dobre. Jean Dobre. <laughs> that's the whole... <laughs> that's it. That's it, that's it. Okay, okay. That, uh, tell us, Mark, where are some of the most interesting places you've visited to, to, to research your, uh, your present? Because you've done a, a, had a wealth of experience and you've done so much research. 
Where have you? Where are some of the most interesting places? Well, look, um, I've had the privilege to visit quite a few countries around the world, South America, you know, North America, and um, uh, even into Asia and so on. But look, uh, the, the top of the top is the Middle East. Mm. The Middle East uh, are the Bible lands from which the Bible was born. Mm. And visiting those places, uh, and especially where some significant discoveries have been made, has been thrilling. To walk in the steps of pharaohs, prophets, and kings, you mm. know, mm. this is a thrill. <laughs> to say, yeah, that's good. You know, not many can say, but you know, there are some places I can say, I stood on the very spot you know, Indeed. where Indeed. it took place. And yeah, that's yeah. true. You can go there, and you, and you can get the feel of... Um, you know, the Bible comes to life. Yeah, I, I remember going to Jerusalem myself and walking through King Hezekiah's tunnel, and we know yeah. it's one of the rare things that still exists today. But it was dug by the workmen of King Hezekiah to bring water into Jerusalem. And uh, when you're standing there, you think, "Wow, the the history that's actually surrounding us at this point." Yeah, and the unbelievable engineering skill. When you go back a long way in time, we yeah, think we, yeah. the further we go back in time, we're, we're becoming more and more like a caveman. Mm. But that is not so. I mean, no. some of the stones that I've seen um, in Lebanon for the ancient Phoenicians, or even the foundation of the Jerusalem Temple, they are huge mammoth blocks of and, stone, and, and so accurately positioned. Yeah. Yes. Egypt. I mean, wherever you go, you marvel mm. at the engineering skill and the intelligence. Um, yeah. Of man going back, you know, one two thousand years before Christ. Mm. Mark, look, I, I have to admit today, I'm a little bit uh, overwhelmed here because I've got a. For those uh, our listeners wouldn't be aware that I have a huge desk here that must be uh, four or five feet long, and uh, you know. A, a, Three feet, five feet wide, a huge desk, and you've brought in all these artifacts. And sitting on this desk now is a desk that is normally so clear, and right now it is covered with artifacts. Now, there's one here. Now, I've got to ask you about them. There's one here that is a clay pot. Uh, it must stand about uh, uh, about uh, 60, 70 centimetres high. It uh, would be able to hold probably 10, 12 litres of, uh, of water. And inside it, you pulled out a, a, a scroll that goes for about 26 feet. Mark, just fill me in. What is that? Well, this jar here is, it's a small one. The other one is bigger I have at home. But the, I have um, some exact replicas of some of the jars in which some of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Wow. Now, these jars were just used for, you know, grain or, you know, wine or something like that. But uh, because the, the Essene community um, uh, back in the first century when the Romans came to invade uh, Judea in AD 66 to AD 70, you know, the Jews wanted to hide their most sacred manuscripts. And so mm -hmm. they hid them in whatever pots they could find, like this one here. And they uh, hid them away in the, in the caves, in mm -hmm. the cliffs above their community down by the Dead Sea. Of course, they never came back to get these uh, hidden treasures of theirs. Mm. And they stood there. They left, they left them there in the caves. And there they remained for nearly 2,000 years until... 1947, when a young Bedouin boy, and next minute we have the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And and in there you've got a uh, an exact replica, 26 feet long, of one of the books of the Bible. 
Yes, um, they actually found uh, amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls two complete copies of the of the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. You know, six, it's the longest wow. book in the Bible, sixty six yes. chapters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they wrote this out on 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 parchment. It was stitched together. Um, when it all rolled out, it was the original is about twenty two to twenty four feet, I think. Uh, mine is a little bit longer because I wanted to make it a, a little bit uh, higher in its in its height. Wow. Um, but, you, you know, I found a high-resolution image of the whole thing and had it printed, and it looks very, uh, well, it looks original, doesn't it, Gary? Oh, it does. This, yeah. is, this is impressive stuff. I'm sort of trying to work out where can I get one of these myself. You know, there, it's excellent. Um, uh, tell me, now, you've got a number of other. I've uh, I've had the privilege of going to the uh, to the British Museum. In fact, at the British Museum, I, I bought this book, uh, The Bible in the British Museum, yes. Interpreting the Evidence, and mm. I found this to be one of the most useful books. Yes. Now, a number of these other um, uh, uh, relics, if I can call them that, uh, are actually based in the British Museum. Can you tell us what a few of them are? Well, we have a few of them here. We we have uh, one here that's called the Tel Dan Steli. It mm-hmm. was found at Tel Dan, which is a, an excavation site, a, a hill kind of thing, is a tell. And uh, they've excavated there at the site of Dan. And uh, they found this at the entrance to the gate uh, going into the excavation site um, in 1993. Very interesting that a year before, in 1992, a kind of a sceptical uh, uh, archaeologist wrote mm-hmm. a book uh, denouncing the fact that David was ever a great king of Israel and ruling over, you know, a great kingdom mm-hmm. and so forth. And really, he was just a, a local chieftain up in the hills if he existed at all. That was mm-hmm. in 1992. The next year, this little uh, tablet, um, the original, well, the, the original is a bit bigger, but it, uh, they found it there. Mm. And when they interpret it, it's the story, it, it just tells a bit about an Aramean king who went to battle with the house of David. Mm. Now, this is one of the first times that we have found, uh, that archaeologists have found, uh, the reference to the house of David. Now, the house of David is a term that's used throughout the Bible. Mm-hmm. It, it indicates he, he ruled over a kingdom. And, and so this is wonderful evidence, not only that, that King David existed, mm. but there was a house of David, you know, yes. a monarchy of a David. A monarchy, yeah. So yeah. A, a, it's, it has a pride of place in the Israeli Museum today. Wow, wow. Look, Mark, we're going to go to some music, but in a moment I want us to come back because I really want you to address this uh, this question because that we're looking at today because I think that what you've got here really contributes in a powerful way to the question that we're dealing with today. But right now, let's go to uh, uh, Katie uh, Gattafson, uh, According to Thy Gracious Word.
you trust the Bible? How could a loving God create a devil? How can a man called Jesus save me? And from what? Faith FM's free offer today is the Hidden Truth magazine, exploring your hard questions about faith and Christianity. To get your free Hidden Truth magazine, go to faithfm.com.au forward slash offers or call us on 1-800-FAITH-FM. That's 1-800-324-843. Welcome again to Faith FM Drive Time. Big questions for God with Pastor Gary and Pastor Mark. Uh, This is the program where we look each week at the difficult questions concerning God and faith, contemporary religion and the Bible. This is the show where we look at world religious trends in the light of Bible prophecy. If you have questions, you can text them to our desk at 0438 066635. Today I've got with me in the studio Pastor Mark Wilson. Uh, Mark is pastor of the Prospect Seventh-day Adventist Church in South Australia. He's an international traveller. He's a renowned presenter on biblical prophecy and archaeology. This week we're asking, how relevant is the Bible in the early third millennium? Today, we start by asking... Can I trust a book that is so old? Mark, the book, the Bible, it's got 66, we call them books, but they're actually composed of of letters, some historical accounts. There's books of of prophecy with dreams and, and visions. Significantly, though, that to me, the challenge is that the youngest of those books is almost 2,000 years old, the oldest is three and a half thousand or more years. That's, that's an old book. It's probably one of the old, it probably is the oldest book that we have in existence. Mark, can I trust a book that is so old? You've got all this material here. Help us out. Oh, absolutely, Gary. Uh, I, I think there's no, uh, uh, there's no age of humanity where this book hasn't been vitally relevant uh, mm-hmm. even today. People are searching through its pages to find answers today. And uh, certainly the lines of evidence that we have uh, are becoming more and more powerful in the answer that they are giving to us. Um, obviously, one of the lines of evidence that I have an interest in, because I'm interested in Bible history, I am interested in Bible prophecy, mm-hmm. and of course uh, the evidences are there that reasonable people living in the 21st century can have a look at and say, hey, yeah, that makes sense. You know? And that that brings me to this this whole question of biblical archaeology. And okay, traveled- this is some of the evidence that we're talking about. In other words, what th- this is the evidence that the uh, that the Bible is more than just uh, um, a, a book of fable. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's one thing to read the Bible, and, it, and it's a very good thing to read the Bible. But when you can read the corroboration of those stories yeah. uh, of the Bible in secular history, yeah. thousands of years. In cuneiform clay tablets, or Powerful. or yeah. or you know, in other sources, then that 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 enhances uh, the credibility of the Bible story. Perhaps Gary, um, uh, I, I like the response of perhaps the world's foremost archaeologist in the Middle East until he died in back in 1977. Mm-hmm. His name was W. F. Albright, famous mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. Um, he was quite a skeptic of the Bible story, but after 40 years of research in the Middle East and archaeological discovery. He had this this to say in a book he published in 1960. He said, The excessive skepticism shown toward the Bible by important historical schools of the 18th and 19th centuries 
has been progressively discredited, he said, Mm. through archaeological discovery. Then he said, discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. Now, I don't know many archaeologists in the Middle East, especially in Israel, that don't at least, even if they don't believe the Bible, they Mm. accept it as a source of history, and often the Bible has led them to make valuable discoveries. Because of uh, some of the documentary evidence that is actually there is so powerful that you you have to consider it in the the light of the bigger picture. Yes, yes. Oh, look, you've got to. Um, I've got another guy here that, um, another archaeologist, an American, he was born of Jewish parents, and uh, he became an expert archaeologist, an expert on ancient pottery and dating periods based on the pottery that uh, they discover at many. That's how they date a lot of these things, through, mm. through pottery. And he identified over 1,500 sites during his career. of arch- And by the way, I must say, when it comes to biblical archaeology, there is thousands of sites around the Middle East that have not yet been excavated. Wow. They're identified, but they're not excavated. And of those that have been excavated, only a fraction of the site has been excavated. So what we have today, which in my mind is still a lot that yeah. helps us with our yeah. understanding yeah. of the Bible, is only a fraction that still lies beneath. Yeah. Anyway, this guy said in his book, um, he wrote in 1969, he said, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Mm. We're not dealing with a book of myth and fable here, Mm. but a very accurate historical record that archaeologists um, are recognizing is a valuable source um, of history. Just uh, what we've got on the table here, Gary, I'm just looking, I just brought four items along here other than the Dead Sea Scroll thing here. We have a, a tablet here uh, discovered in 1993 that confirms the the, the existence of King David. Mm-hmm. We have here, and that um, was doubted for a long time, it wasn't was it? Certainly doubted, yeah, yeah, only yeah. as early as 1992. Yep, yep, yep. It was doubted, but there it is. Yep. Um, we we have here um, from the New Testament era. We know the Jesus story. We have just been through Easter, the story of Pontius Pilate. Yeah. Yep. And here we have a, um, it's quite a large stone. I have a small replica of it. It was a large stone found in a theatre stage in Caesarea in Israel. And it mentions the name of Pontius Pilate. Mm-hmm. So his existence outside the Bible has been confirmed. Then we have this one here, the Cyrus Cylinder. Cyrus was the king of the Persians. Um, the Bible mentions the kingdom of the Persians, and his name is recorded in the Bible. So again, he's been verified. Mm-hmm. Then we have this other small cylinder, uh, cuneiform writing. It's found in um, um, in Iraq, and this is called the Nabonidus Cylinder. Nabonidus was the co-ruler. His son, mm. Belshazzar, was the last king of Babylon. Yeah. But for a long time, people discredited the Bible because everybody knew the last king of Babylon was Nabonidus and there was no mention of Belshazzar in anything, anywhere outside the Bible. And, and that is actually one of the things that I, I've i certainly shared with so many people because this doubt about the who the last king of Babylon was uh, seemed to throw discredit 
on the Bible for so many years. Oh, very much so, especially, you know, as you go back um, the 18th, 19th century, it was an age of scepticism and so forth. But that age, the same age, the 18th, 19th century, was the age of archaeological discovery. So the critics were pouring scorn on the Bible because, you know, there's no mention of Belsatia. And then the spade of the archaeologists dug up these cylinders, more than one, all now very And suddenly they've got to go silent. And suddenly, suddenly all the, uh, those who are challenging have to actually go quiet. Oh, yes, they, they all, you know, uh, left their ship. <laughs> it was, it was quite a, uh, look, archaeologist Siegfried, Siegfried Horn, this is what mm. he said about this discovery. The rediscovery of Belshazzar forms another glorious chapter in the history of biblical archaeology. You know, just because something is not there, you know, the absence of evidence doesn't necessarily approve a thing false. Um, all we have to do is wait. Who knows what the spade of the archaeologists mm. would give? Mm. And uh, that's been proven so many times. The spade of the archaeologists have come along and um, and verified so many mm. details mm. in the Bible story. I've got another statement here by Professor Lawrence. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name. But he's working at Purdue University in Indiana, the USA. He made headlines back in just in 2014 when he published an academic article called Archaeology Confirms 50 Real People in the Bible. Well, I've just got four here in mm, front of us in mm, these, mm. these tablets. And then a couple of years later, three years later, he published another one, Archaeology Confirms Three More People in the Bible. And an Israeli news service picked up on this and they reported in the news this this uh, got headlines around the world, but uh, they said this, a recently published academic study which proves the historical existence of at least 53 biblical figures may represent a recent trend in the academic and archaeological world giving unprecedented credibility to the truth of the Bible. So now archaeologists, you know, even if they're sceptical about the religious or the spiritual you know, overtones in yeah, it, yeah. Uh, are, are being gra- dragged kicking and screaming to accept the historical reliability of a book we call the mm. Bible. Mm. Mm. Share with us, uh, share with us the, the importance of all of this, Mark. It's, uh, uh, bring, it, bring it together. Well, I guess the important... Let me just continue what this Israeli uh, news article said. Uh, they they continued uh, their report and they said, This evidence shows that it's not essential to have religious faith in order to understand and accept much of what the Bible presents. Uh, it demonstrates that even on the basis of writings outside the Bible alone, Scripture does have a considerable degree of historical credibility. You know, I run meetings around Australia and sometimes mm, internationally. Mm, mm. And when I'm presenting some of this stuff, I like to tell people, now to relax, relax I'm not getting religious, you know. You don't even have to be a believer to yeah. accept what I'm yeah. saying because yeah. a fact is a fact. Mm. And uh, people uh, are warming towards the Bible when they see that there's more to it than just a fairy story. Yeah, yeah. That there's yeah. a strong basis of credibility historical, historically. And then as we move into the, the parts of the Bible that uh, talk about prophecy or the predictions of the future, um, there are so many of those uh, predictions that have been fulfilled and verified by history and archaeology. Mm-hmm. And oh, look, I'm I'm very excited about that, especially mm-hmm. when I see Bible history, Bible prophecy, archaeology, secular history outside the Bible, all converging mm-hmm. to tell us tell a story that we can trust this old book of God. How do you mean they converge? I I, I don't quite quite get that. 
Well, let me give you a, um, perhaps an example. Um, I've got here in front of me the Cyrus Cylinder. It mentions the name of Cyrus, who was the great uh, king of the Persian Empire. He reigned from 559 to 529 BC. He's well established in history, isn't he? Well established. Very famous in Iran Mm -hmm. because uh, Persia was in Iran. He was the kingdom who conquered the Babylonian Empire in 539 BC. He established a vast Persian Empire based in Iran, but right across the Middle East. I visited, by way, Iran last year mm-hmm. and had the privilege to walk in the footsteps of King Cyrus and wow. and see the tomb of Cyrus and the, pal- wow. the old ruins of the palaces of Cyrus. You know, you, the Bible comes to life. These are not myth and fairy stories. I also visited uh, Jerusalem a few times, and over there they have the Israeli Museum, one of the great museums of the world for biblical archaeology, and they have there a building what they call the Shrine of the Book. You've probably been there, Gary. Mm-hmm, indeed, yes. Um, the top of it is like the top of one of these jars where yes. they found the, the, yes, Dead I remember sea, that. the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they, in the inside, they have a replica of the great Isaiah scroll there um, that was found in a cave down near the Dead Sea. Now, this discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it became headline news across the world. It was the late great archaeologist that I mentioned before, W.F. Albright, who said that this discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was the greatest manuscript discovery of modern times. And indeed, he said it was the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century. Just give us what the date is on those again, because this is something that I think many of our listeners need to pick up on. How how old were the uh, were the scrolls uh, at Qumran when they were discovered? Well, they were dated between uh, 100 to 250 thereabouts years before Christ. So basically from the 2nd to the 3rd century BC. Mm. Now, what is very critical about this is that the the oldest manuscripts supporting the Old Testament, for example, dated to a 1,000 years after Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a discovery, and they found, um, well, two complete copies of Isaiah, um, portions of every other book of the Bible, large or small, except the book of Esther. Now, of course, the great question that everyone had when they discovered these scrolls was what has changed in the Bible in over a thousand years of handwritten transmission? That's a powerful question, isn't it? Because that goes to the authenticity of the Bible. Oh, what if you and I just wrote out something and passed it around over a thousand years? I mean, <laughs> if you did it over two I weeks, mean, for me, you'd have trouble. <laughs> it wouldn't, wouldn't it look anything like the original. Yeah. But um, uh, they found amongst these two complete scrapies of the prophet Isaiah. And let me quote to you uh, the American uh, archaeologist uh, Miller Burroughs, a leading authority on the Dead Sea Scrolls and professor at Yale Divinity School. This is what he said after years of research about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the biblical text. He said Mm -hmm. this, There are minor omissions and additions, but the remarkable fact is that there is nothing which can be called a major addition or omission. And another uh, scholar on the Dead Sea Scrolls by the name of Gleason Gleason Archer, he said this in 1985, he said, even though, and he's speaking about the the Isaiah scroll, Mm -hmm. the replica that I have here today, even though the two copies of Isaiah discovered in Qumran Cave 1 near the Dead Sea back in 1947 were a thousand years earlier than the oldest dated manuscript previously known, which was from Mm -hmm. 916 Mm -hmm. AD or 980 AD, they proved to be, this are the words he said, they proved to be word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. That is incredible. Mm. A Mm. thousand years difference 
and we have like a photocopy, mm. word for word identical. The 5% of variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling. Now, when I discovered this kind of evidence that's, that's mm. out there for mm. the Bible, you know, I can pick up a Bible today. Anyone, you can go mm. down and pick up a Bible today, begin reading the words of the Old Testament, and you can have confidence that what you read is practically word for word identical to what was original, originally written by the prophet. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I I think this is something, Mark. That as we as we dig into it, as we look at it, we've got to turn around and just stand in awe at what is actually occurring here, because we have a, a process of transmission. If you like, those who wrote and rewrote the scriptures were tradesmen. They were tradesmen scribes. They were trained to be able to write and rewrite and copy with a level of accuracy that today we would stand in absolute awe at. Well, we've both been to the um, the scriptorium, you know, in the Essene community where they copied out the scrolls. They found the tables on which mm. the scribes, it was like they might have 20 or 30 scribes, writers mm. there, a fellow up the front. He would read a few words. Everyone would write it down. Mm. And they would keep on going, going until they got the end of the, the, the page. And then they'd all count up the words on every line and through the page. If there was one mistake, they would throw that one out. They were meticulous in their um, accuracy. That would certainly be an incentive, wouldn't it, to, to not make mistakes. If you knew that you know, the entire scroll was going to be thrown out if you made one mistake, it would certainly be an incentive to, to, to copy accurately when others were going to check your writing. Well, what would your mates say after work? You, you, you leave the scriptorium and they're all having a go at you because you made a silly mistake and the whole page had to be thrown, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. They were very meticulous. And it's, it's, a, it's a testimony to the, the intelligence, the accurate transmission of the biblical record down through the centuries. Mm. I mean, even when we come to the New Testament, too, there's questions about, about that. Well, how do you know, you know, this or that is the same as what was written by you know, the, uh, the apostles and the Paul and so on in the first century. No one today uh, discredits the history that we might have, say, of Plato or Herodotus or the Roman historian Tacitus or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But do you know the span between when they lived and the oldest copy of um, their writings? For example, Plato. He lived in the 5th century or, you know, the 4th and 5th century B.C., but there's 1,200 years between him and the oldest copy of a manuscript from Plato. Okay. Um, there's 1,300 years between uh, the Greek historian Herodotus, who lived in the 5th century BC, and and the oldest copy of his writing. And as I understand it, in Plato's writings, there are actually only about six or eight copies in total. Uh, seven. 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 Herodotus, eight. Um, Tacitus, uh, there are about 20, a Roman historian mm-hmm. in the first century, but the oldest copies of the, the writings of Tacitus, the Roman historian, come from a thousand years after his time. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the New Testament, um, the oldest copies closest to the original date from the second century AD, a couple of hundred years, maybe 150 years. In fact, there's a fragment from the Gospel of John that is within 30 years of its writing. Wow. The uh, wow. John Ryland's wow. uh, fragment. Wow. Um, yeah. Most then you go to the fourth century, and in fact, the numbers of copies of New Testament manuscripts that we have today is um, 
uh, over 5,500. And I think, Mark, that's the thing that really stands out to me because not only do you have um, uh, fragments and uh, scrolls that are close to the original in dating, but you also have a multiplied number of uh, of scrolls. And of course the significance there is that if you've got a multiplied number, what you can do is actually compare the scrolls and they come from different different areas and different people and you can see have changes occurred. And uh, yes, and that's that's textual criticism. That's what scholars have been doing for a long time now. Uh, Sir, Sir Frederick Kenyon um, uh, commenting Mark. upon the accuracy. We're going to have to have to move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's just come. Can can you just bring this together just very very quickly? Yeah. Well, well. Basically, all we can say is, um, uh, Gary, that uh, when it comes to the accuracy of the transmission, the historical reliability of Bible, we have truckloads of evidence. Yeah. We can be very yeah. very uh, uh, assured of the accuracy of its transmission, its historical reliability as well. Mm, ah, that's powerful. Mark, look, let's just come to a song. Then we're going to come back as we need to start tying this together. Uh, let's come to uh, Michael Smith, uh, Ancient Words. What a powerful message this man gives.
You're listening to Faith FM Drive Time, Big Questions for God with Pastor Gary and Pastor Mark. This is the program where we look each week at the difficult questions concerning God and faith, contemporary religion and the Bible. This is a show where we look at world religious trends in the light of Bible prophecy. If you have questions, you can text them to our desk on 0438 uh, Today I've got with me Pastor Mark Wilson. P- Mark is pastor of the Prospect Seventh-day Adventist Church in South Australia, an international traveller, a renowned presenter on biblical history and archaeology. We're asking today, how relevant is the Bible in the early third millennium? Today we've been asking, can, can I trust a book that is so old. Mark, I want you to, if you can possibly just bring it together. If I was to ask you, what three things for you are the most powerful evidence that the Bible is a trustworthy book? How would you respond? Well, look, to sum up a little bit what we've been saying, Gary, one of the first evidences would be for me, uh, a very powerful, is that uh, I can trust... Um, the, the, the Bible we hold in our hands today, the manuscript evidence we have for this book far is in far, far superiority to any other ancient manuscript mm. that we accept as uh, history. So um, we can have absolute uh, wonderful confidence in the um, accurate transmission of both the Old Testament and New Testament mm-hmm. today. The second thing that is very powerful for me is the strength of the biblical archaeological record in confirming not only historical details, you know, that individuals actually existed, places existed, but also what archaeology does to confirm the, the probably the, the number one evidence for me, and that is the, the prophecies of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And the prophecies of the Bible, there are many of them that have been fulfilled, Confirmed by history and archaeology. Mm-hmm. I find that as the three most powerful um, evidences, and perhaps I can give you a small example if mm. you want. One. If you could, that'd be great. Well, we have here before us the Cyrus Cylinder, and the byproduct of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was, uh, well, not only that the, 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 the history or the historical reliability of the book of Isaiah and, and, and the existence of a king called Cyrus and so on, but also the prophetic fulfillment that a prophecy in the book of Isaiah has had. 
Um, if what was that prophecy? Can you just refresh our memory? Because yes, it, this it, is important. It's recorded in the 44th and perhaps um, the, the first uh, number of verses in the 45th chapter of Isaiah. It's well worth reading. But if I just read a couple of statements from this passage in Isaiah 44, the last couple of verses, verse 27, 28, it says, I'll dry up your rivers. Speaking of Babylon, I'll dry up your rivers. And then who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he'll perform all my pleasure. In the 45th chapter, it says, To Cyrus, whose right hand I've held, to subdue nations before him, and that God will open before him the double doors, and the gates won't be shut. Mm -hmm. This is talking about his siege against the Babylonian kingdom. Mm -hmm. And then it goes on to say, For Jacob, my servant's sake, Israel, my elect, I've called you by your name, I've named you, though you have not known me. Now, Cyrus was no believer in the God of Israel. Cyrus was a Persian, he, mm. the sun worship and so mm. forth like that. But it's incredible that in this passage here, it says his name at least twice, mentions him by name. Specifically, it says, I've called you by your name. And then it gives the reason why he's called him by his name, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Now, what's incredible about this, Gary, is that this record of Isaiah was written down in the 8th century before Christ, mm -hmm. in the 700s before Christ. Mm -hmm. Cyrus was not even a sparkle in his mother's eye for another 140 years. Mm. He wasn't born for another 140 years. He is a 6th century B.C. Persian king, you know, in mm. the early 520s, you know, um, B.C., and yet he was named by name. Mm. This is why skeptical scholars, they couldn't accept the book of Isaiah and said it, was, it must have been written as history after the event. Mm. But, of course, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and two complete copies of Isaiah mm. put to bed the myth that Isaiah was written by multiple authors after the event. And so now the evidence is that Isaiah is an accurate book, mm. according to what we have. And now the Cyrus So what we actually have there is predictive prophecy. We have a, a prophecy of something that occurred before it actually occurred. Yes, a predictive prophecy. And this is the number one uh, evidence of the inspiration of the Bible. If the Bible gives any evidence at all of mm. its inspiration, it is its ability to reveal the future. And revealing the future, even by name, of the Persian king, what he would do when he conquered Babylon. You know, he diverted the river of the Euphrates that went through the heart of the Babylon. Mm. And the prophet said that he would dry up the rivers. Yeah. That's what happened yeah. in the overthrow of Babylon. Yeah. It said that the gates would not be shut. Well, Babylonians, they were having a drunken party that night. They felt their fortress was, uh, their city was impregnable, but they left the gates open and so the Cyrus went in. So many details in mm. Isaiah have been fulfilled in prophecy and affirmed by history mm -hmm. in his overthrow of that city. I find that astounding. Mm. I f find that incredibly powerful that the Bible could do such a thing. But so it is. We have yeah. to grapple then with its meaning. That's, that is incredibly powerful. You know, Mark, one of the things that really stands out to me, just a, a little while ago on my Christmas holidays, I had opportunity to read a, um, a book. It's actually written by Dr. John Lennox, who is Professor of Mathematics at uh, Oxford University. The book's called Against the Flow. It's actually a commentary on the, on the biblical book of Daniel. And I love, because he actually picks up this point of... Uh, of 
predictive prophecy because, you know, to me the most significant thing that you're saying here is that the spade of the archaeologist and history combined together to prove that predictive prophecy was accurate and did actually occur. Exactly. And and to me that's incredibly powerful. This is what John Lennox actually says um, says in his uh, in his commentary. In other words, the fulfilment of supernatural prophecy lies at the heart of what Christianity is. Correct. To claim to be a Christian and not take it seriously is a contradiction in terms. Yet in my experience, many professed Christians seem somewhat embarrassed by this dimension of their faith. But Christianity is thoroughly embedded in history and prophecy. Many of its central events, including the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, were the subject of predictions made centuries early. earlier. I'm only too well aware that contemporary culture in the West is so dominated by the naturalistic, or the that things are going to happen naturally, naturalistic worldview that anyone who claims that there's a supernatural dimension to reality is looked at with disbelief. They're even mocked. When I mentioned the resurrection, and so he goes on and, and speaks about a debate that he had with, um, um, with, with Richard Dawkins. Do you know, to me, this is a powerful statement because what we've got, this, uh, this man, of course, uh, John Lennox, is not a member of, uh, of my church. He's simply, uh, he's a Christian who believes thoroughly in the historicity of the Bible. And to me, what he is saying here seems to tie together so much of what you are actually saying today. You know, I mean, um, you know, how do you feel about, you know, contemporary, you know, Lennox here saying that contemporary Christians are embarrassed often by the supernatural dimension of their faith. Would you agree with Lennox on that? Well, um, I'm certainly not embarrassed by the supernatural dimension of my of, of, of the faith. Do you think many in Christianity are? Maybe they are. I would say, Gary, that a lot of people don't know, even if they uh, subscribe to some form of Christianity or Christian belief or Bible belief, do not really understand how strong is the evidence that bears up that uh, belief. Mm. And uh, as I run meetings around the place, I am amazed how people come back. I mean, they their minds are blown. I mean, they, yeah, they cannot yeah, believe. Yeah, yeah. Hardly what they're hearing. Yep. It is so powerful for them. By about the third or the fourth night, they will crawl over broken glass to come to these meetings yeah. because yeah. of what they're hearing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I find, look, if you want to boost your faith, if you want to have a strong faith, get your head into these evidences. Yeah. Study Bible prophecy, especially the prophecies that have been fulfilled in history. Don't worry yeah. too much about what's yet to come, but start with that which has been fulfilled because yeah. we can see the evidence of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, like Cyrus that I've got here and other things like that. It's, uh, what about it's, prophecies concerning Christ? Are there many concerning Christ, the messianic type? type? Look, it has been said there is up to 300 uh, uh, individual predictions concerning the life of Christ, most of them centering on, on his final, you know, um, uh, Passion Week yeah, and his crucifixion yeah, and so yeah, on. Yeah. From King David, uh, Daniel. Oh boy, I wish we had time to go through some of these things. They are mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. How yeah. Daniel could predict the very year of the Messiah's yeah, coming. Yeah. Uh, Isaiah predicting, um, 
his uh, virgin birth. I mean, Micah predicting the place of his birth, and, and, and so it goes on. Ze- um, Zechariah predicting the price of the betrayal, and over and over, these predictions are there, and they all only fit in the life of one person in history, mm. uh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. May I share a statement with your listeners, Please Gary, um, that I found very powerful. Werner Keller was a New York journalist, and um, back in the 1950s, he heard about all these discoveries and so forth. And so he took himself over to the Middle East and he uh, investigated all the discoveries and the Bible record and so forth. And he came and he wrote a, wrote a book called The Bible as History. It's still published today. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a well, very well-known book. And this is what he said in, in the introduction to his book. Speaking about the discoveries, he said, These breathtaking discoveries, whose significance it is impossible to grasp at once, make it necessary for us to revise our views about the Bible. In view of the overwhelming mass of authentic and well-attested evidence now available, as I thought of the sceptical criticism which from the 18th century onwards would fain have demolished the Bible altogether, there kept hammering on my brain this one sentence. The Bible is right after all. Mm. And as I've been around the Middle East, Gary, and, and investigated these things myself, I know there's problems. I know the criticisms that are out there. But as you take a careful look, a considerate, intelligent, rational look at the evidence that we have, for me, it, it, I, I'm feeling like Werner Keller. It keeps mm. hammering on my brain. Yeah. The Bible is right after all. I've crawled over and I've climbed over the Middle East in three tours now, for, and for 30 years I've looked at these arguments for and against. And uh, to be honest, I, I can't go beyond my own intelligence in accepting the divine inspiration of this book. It's a wonderful book. It, it's wonderfully simple, mm. and it's simply wonderful. Yeah, yeah. What we're, what we're really saying here is that so many view the, view the, the Scriptures very much as fable, uh, very much the same way as they might view Santa Claus, maybe as a, maybe some sort of a, you know, a historical artifact, but as something that has got significant evidence backing it up is a point that so many actually miss. Yes, Gary. Look, if any of your listeners are looking to read a really good book, very Mm. simple, easy to read book. The best I've read Mm. is a book I have with me today, and I know you've got it in your library Mm. too. It's called Can We Still Believe the Bible? It's a good book. And Does It Really Matter? Yeah. By Brian Ball. I'll repeat it. Can We Still Believe the Bible? By Brian Ball. Go home and Google and get hold of that book or contact Gary here. And uh, that book is just a wonderful faith-affirming book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That certainly shares so much historical and archaeological evidence. I really appreciate you sharing that uh, that with us. Mark, it looks like our time is actually up for today. I really want to say thank you to for coming along and sharing and joining with us. But, Mark, I'm wondering before we finish, how would you feel about praying uh, for our listeners who are hearing us today? Sure, sure. Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the wonderful book called the Bible, the book of all books, the book of the ages. And I want to thank you for the wonderful faith-affirming evidence that is abundantly available there, whether we want to dig into the uh, archaeological record or when we want to look at the accurate transmission of the Bible, or even more astounding, the incredible fulfillments of prophecy, hundreds of predictions 
uh, all combining together um, to lift up um, the, the fact that the Bible is an inspired book and the Savior it presents is indeed the Savior of the world, Jesus mm. Christ. Bless every listener, I pray, in Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining Pastor Gary, Pastor Mark Wilson, uh, on Drive Time Show today. Tomorrow we continue to dig into this subject when we ask, what does the Bible claim about itself? I really look forward to seeing you tomorrow. But until then, please remember Christ said, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give isn't like the peace that the world gives. So don't be troubled or afraid. John 14, verse 27. May the Lord richly bless each one of you.